This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch-Larson. And Sarah, I, I think that maybe for this episode, we should flip the script a little bit. Given the movie we're going to be talking about here in a bit, maybe we should say that in Soviet Russia, believing is seeing. Oh no, this sounds like there's going to be some, maybe some spy craft, maybe some twists and turns, maybe some sort of spy games that are going to be played in the movie we're talking about. Would you accept video game business deals instead? Um, I mean, as long as I don't have to win a Tetris tournament in order to be able to do it. We'll see how it goes, listeners. We're going to be talking about the new film Tetris streaming on Apple TV Plus this weekend. And we're going to be pairing it with another movie about... Uh, The intersection between art and commerce, that would be Miloš Forman's 1984 film Amadeus. Looking forward to digging into that. That is one of our Patreon picks. It's going to be a great discussion on episode 375 of Seeing and Believing. It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. I played for five minutes. I still see falling blocks in my dreams. It's poetry, art and math, all working in magical synchronicity. It's it's the perfect game. Tetris. 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 I don't get it. We're here on episode 375 of Seeing and Believing. And Sarah, it's good to be back in the co-host chair. I really appreciated you taking the reins during my one-week sabbatical last week and bringing uh, Abby Olchesi on to, to talk about John Wick. I haven't had a chance to listen to the full episode yet, but I am curious, you know, does John Wick, you know, shoot and beat him up really good? <laughs> he does indeed shoot and beat him up really good. Um, I was, I'm definitely happy to hold down the fort at the Continental Hotel while you are off doing your, you know, globetrotting assassin adventures and things like that. Yeah, well, I should not comment on that anymore because I don't want to have armies of assassins sent after me in my turn. So we'll just leave it there for now. But suffice to say, I was really happy that the good ship seeing and believing kept sailing on without me Mm -hmm. in my absence. Happy to have you back, though. Well, well, I am looking forward to this week's episode. We're going to be talking about what, for my money, is one of the best movies of the 1980s, Amadeus, in the second half of this episode. That's one of our Patreon picks. So looking forward to talking about that one. I'm also looking forward to digging into this movie that we're talking about here in the first segment, Tetris. Big part of my childhood. I don't know if it was of yours. Oh, yeah, definitely. We had Welch family tournaments uh, to see who could play Tetris the best. All right. Yep. Nice, nice. Mm -hmm. Well, the movie we're talking about in this first segment is titled Tetris, but this is actually based on the true-to-life story of how Tetris was brought to the masses here in the West. So it follows American video game salesman Hank Rogers, played here by Taron Egerton, who discovers Tetris at a trade show in 1988 
and sets out to cut a deal that will allow him to get it into as many people's hands as possible. The only catch is that the game was created by Alexei Pajitnov in the Soviet Union, which throws a bunch of bureaucratic and political hurdles in Rogers' way. The film follows Rogers as he enters a dangerous web of lies and corruption behind the Iron Curtain, all in service of the idea that, as Pajitnov tells him, good ideas have no borders. So that kind of, when I've encountered that line in this film, Sarah, that to me kind of read like a thesis statement for the film as a whole. So maybe we'll start there. How successful do you think this new film is at exploring that idea about good ideas, political borders, and the grand unifying power of fun? You know, the the thesis statement of good ideas have no borders sounds very nice. I don't know that the movie's very good at backing that statement up because I don't know that it actually knows how to support it. The thrust of the movie is less about good ideas having no borders and more about the power of capitalism to bring things to the masses. And, you know, You've got a Cold War narrative, you've got kind of um, American ways of thinking pitted against Russian ways of thinking and capitalism versus communism happening here. That all makes for an interesting story, or it would, I think, if this movie knew how to tell that story particularly well, but it really feels like it's putting the drama in dramatization of how Tetris came to the West without really being able to understand the stakes of it. Like, it's nice to say that good ideas have no borders, but that's a very abstract concept. And the movie seems to be much more interested in the money troubles of Rogers as he's trying to get Tetris to the masses. And as it's focusing, or at least kind of touching on those plot points, and I guess we can talk about how well it does that, um, it feels more like the movie is more concerned with just the idea of money exchanging hands. So it's less about Tetris is great, more people should be able to play it, and more about who's going to be able to cut the greatest deal in getting Tetris out of the communist bloc and into the West and into video game consoles. That's kind of a muddled story. And it's really a bummer because the the story itself sounds very interesting. There's a lot of rights that are tied up. There's a lot of misunderstandings. There's a lot of cross-cultural differences. And instead of focusing on the nuances of what actually happened, this is a movie that decides that it needs to goose the action by inserting a car chase in the middle of a parade that may not may or may not have actually happened. Like I spent quite a lot of the movie thinking, I don't know that I believe this either on an emotional level or a plot level. And then I went and looked it up and everything that I didn't believe was all stuff that had been made up for the movie. So I don't know, I found it deeply irritating personally because I felt as though the movie was trying to make me excited about things that didn't really matter in the long run because they were not true to life. So curious to know what your reaction was. Yeah. I feel like this movie is part of a subgenre that has become dispiritingly more common lately, which is to take sort of a Wikipedia summary of something that actually happened um, and then try to sort of muscle it into being something interesting as a film 
kind of through sheer force of will. Mm-hmm. And I don't and I don't know that that is frequently very interesting. I think I think maybe a movie like uh Moneyball mm. is is kind of an example of when that concept works well. You know, it's about kind of a um a subject that isn't necessarily immediately appealing to anybody who's not already kind of a you know a baseball wonk or in this case you know an 80s video game business wonk (laughs) but there's the potential if you have a kind of a collection of good performers uh, a good writer as moneyball has both of those things in spades Mm -hmm. um where you can kind of it can still kind of generate something that will really grab the audience and pull them through the story, uh, even if it is basically just sort of recounting a, a series of events and facts that were first written about kind of in a nonfiction kind of oral history almost of those events. So I don't think that it's easy to do that. Mm-mm. So it's odd to me that a lot of films seem to go to that well and kind of almost expect it to be something that's as easy as just sort of recounting the the basic facts and then inserting some sort of liberties with the historical narrative to, you know, make sure that the audience doesn't fall asleep. Like this car chase that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Or just even beyond that, just a lot of really rote plot points like the the money troubles of Taron Egerton's Hank Rogers, where it's those things probably happened, but the way they're portrayed here, it feels like pretty much any story about a businessman who's or a, a business person who's rolling the dice and risking it all in one big throw. And it's just, it's not interesting enough on its own merits for to, to hold the, the audience's interest on its own. And the tactics that uh, Baird employs to goose it in other ways Mm -hmm. are just, they're not plausible (laughs) just in the moment. And they also kind of raise some questions about why exactly are we rooting for Hank Rogers to close this deal and make a lot of money for his himself, for his business partners, for the Soviet Union. Like, what are we rooting for? Mm -hmm. Because it doesn't seem like the movie's all that actually interested in the good ideas that know no borders, as Pajitnov says. It seems like it's more interested in the business side of things. Business can be interesting. I don't think the way this film goes about portraying business is very interesting, though. Yeah, I think the comparison to Moneyball is a good one because – I'm not much of a baseball person. I'm definitely not a statistician. I'm not really interested in the numbers. But Moneyball works because it's willing to get into the specificity and demonstrate why those numbers are interesting to the people who care about them. And in so doing, I think it makes the audience care about those things a little bit more. Um, Whereas here, it feels as though the script for Tetris is well one it feels kind of like it's it's a treatment more so than a script and it feels kind of like a first draft pass over the story i think that this could have been a really good movie if the writers had been interested in demonstrating some sort of interest in the process behind what's going on but because we skate over the specificity of 
you know, international copyright law, which again, not a very interesting thing on its face, but it is something that you can, it's going to be interesting to somebody. It was very clearly interesting to the people who discovered Tetris and decided that they wanted to publish it, or at least it was interesting enough that they were going to try to exploit the loopholes in international copyright policy. And I think there's a really interesting story there, but you have to be willing to get into those very small, minute details in order to be able to tell that story in a compelling way. And instead of doing that, Tetris takes that story and just sort of maps it over your typical generic, I am a business person sort of story, and even includes the prerequisite this person is good at business, so they are bad at showing up for their children when <laughs> they need to be there for the talent show at school. That's a very basic screenwriting trick, and it's not even treated like it, the movie doesn't treat the audience with the respect enough to even try to disguise it as anything else. It's just sort of thrown in there for drama. It's, it's literally like a minute and a half, and then it disappears and isn't really mentioned again. Yeah, and I think that speed is another part of this movie that just really doesn't work either. It feels as though every single plot point is hit very, very quickly and then skated by almost immediately. We meet the characters. We find out that they're learning about Tetris we have the story of Rogers's discovery of Tetris at a convention sort of recounted in an office somewhere, but it's all very rapid fire and it's very almost anonymous. There's, there's no real character to this story and there's not very much specificity to the individual characters that are populating the story, maybe with the exception of Alexei Pajitnov, played by Nikita Efemrov. I... He's doing something here that I don't think is necessarily relegated to the script, and maybe it's because it's a much more understated performance than anything else we're getting here. I think that that might have worked for me the best out of this movie, but the movie also doesn't allow that performance any room to breathe. We get to spend a little bit of time with Alexei and his wife as Hank is trying to cut this deal with the Soviets. And we get the sense that their life, Alexei and his wife's life, is a difficult one, but it's all very shorthand scripty, like this is what happens in Soviet Russia in the late 1980s, and that's about it. Again, there's there's no specificity, there's no time, and I think if the movie had thought to slow down and trust its audience to be able to take interest in something that it could demonstrate as being interesting, this would have been a much more interesting movie. I mean, it, it's the the movie makes some some odd or maybe not odd choices, but just choices that, you know, watching the finished product makes you wonder about the roads not taken and why those roads weren't taken instead. Mm -hmm. uh, Alexi, for example, is kind of an interesting protagonist. I wanted more of him in this movie. Mm -hmm. And it made me kind of wonder why we were, f we were following Hank Rogers around trying to scrape together the, you know, $5 million or whatever to buy the handheld rights and the console rights for Tetris. Like, why do I care about that when there's a perfectly sturdy looking story about the little guy in Soviet Russia who has this golden ticket of an idea, but there are all these... Uh, forces sort of looming over him, trying to keep him down. That seems very interesting. Um, the the scene where, uh, which again, I, I'm not entirely sure if this one was invented for the film as well, but there's a scene where Rogers and Pajitnov sit down at a at a computer 
and make a few tweaks to the code of Tetris to see if they can make it even more fun. Mm -hmm. And that kind of moment where they're collaborating and doing some coding and very, you know, nuts and bolts kind of craft stuff. That could have been interesting too, to just see like, why do these guys like doing what they do? Mm -hmm. Um, What is it about coding that is interesting to them? Um, Kind of the, the thrill of, working out a problem that could also be a very interesting angle and yet for it to focus so much on you know nickels and dimes and letters of intent and generically uh corrupt politicians and businessmen in various corners of the globe mm-hmm. that's those things can be interested interesting too in theory in practice here they're not though which makes me wonder if the filmmakers weren't able to infuse those elements with particular dramatic interest why didn't they just focus on one of these other (laughs) avenues because there's something there Mm -hmm. yeah there is and i think a lot of that again kind just kind of comes back to fremov's uh performance there's a moment where we have several soviet bureaucrats and we have hank and we have alexi kind of all sitting in a boardroom together hashing out their differences through a language barrier and Alexi's just sitting there, and the way that he's framed is he's off to the side of the table. He's not on either side, either with the bureaucrats or with Hank as he's trying to, you know, cut this deal. The inventor of this game is literally cut out of the deal to be able to, you know, sell his own invention. And there's a line that he says earlier in the film where he says he's he doesn't have those rights and he's frankly not interested in exercising those rights. And I think that there's an interesting tension there between the way that he's shown literally being pushed over to the side of the room and the way that he says he feels about being cut out of, you know, the distribution of his own invention and then his coming around to being willing to bring Tetris to the West. And I I think that there could have been a really interesting story just with this character's own interiority as he comes to know Hank, comes to trust him a little bit more. But we really don't get very much of that. It's just a couple of quiet character beats and then sort of a a one-off, tossed-off line. And... I don't know, it just, it really bums me out because I came away from the movie wanting to know a lot more about Pajitnov and feeling like I didn't learn anything that I already knew going in. And that to me, I I think is the ultimate failure of this movie is that it's not, it's fine to be able to inform somebody about the event, like the historical events for something as... I don't know, maybe mundane as Tetris. It's weird to think of Tetris as being mundane, but it's something that's everywhere. We sort of take it for granted. This could have been a movie about how Tetris was really, truly special and how it became mundane. It could have also been a movie about this brilliant person who came up with a game that everybody wants to copy. And yet it's not really interested in any of those pieces at all. It's just interested in hitting plot points on a very surface level. And I find that deeply frustrating because if anything, art should be illuminating about something about the human condition, whether that's being informative about the actual historical events or illuminating about the character behind those historical events. I'm fine with messing with the actual historicity of the story as long as the story itself still rings true. And here we both get a movie that messes with the historicity and also does not ring true because it's riddled with cliches. Yeah, it it doesn't it 
it doesn't ring true and it also just makes you wonder why why this story what mm. what is it about the story that needed to be told and any story can be, you know sort of any, any story can be interesting but i'm not sure what it is about hank's journey such as it is <laughs> mm-hmm. that that th- makes us want to ca- to care mm-hmm. i i i'm i'm struggling to articulate what's frustrating about this film because i think maybe another angle that could have uh, been explored here is is not so much you know the specifics of the story it doesn't have to be thematically weighty in, in a particular way it wouldn't even necessarily need to illuminate something for me about the human condition per se mm. but if if it if it doesn't want to do those things i would kind of hope that at least the cinematic craft around it would at least render it um interesting on that level mm-hmm. and it's disappointing to me that um you don't get some i i was hoping for me something on the long lines of the social network where there's that great bravura sequence that Fincher gives us where we see Mark Zuckerberg sitting down and kind of making face mash in his dorm room. Mm-hmm. And I'm not a programmer. I don't really understand how he's doing all that stuff, even though, you know, he's chattering away in voiceover telling me how he's doing it. But because everything is knit together so well with Trent Reznor's score, Fincher's directing the editing um, the the screenplay, all the performances, all of those things come together to at least render it something cinematically compelling, even if I'm not necessarily having my horizons broadened. <laughs> um, but I feel like Tetris, uh, even in the the craft of it, doesn't have excellence there to to recommend itself to to me. Yeah. There's a very weird choice that this movie makes, which is to rotoscope some pixels over certain things during an action sequence. I mean, to be honest, to me, that feels a little bit like they're just like, we got to make this interesting somehow, so let's do something visual, but it's not enough. Yeah, and I think that's really disappointing because it's such a surface level decision to make as opposed to framing something in an interesting way or giving us a reason to care about the characters in the first place instead of actually like imbuing some sort of, I don't know, intent or meaning into the script and into the storytelling and even just into the cinematography, we just kind of get this idea, or I got the sense anyway, that this effect was something that was just kind of added on in post as though it was an afterthought, like as though the artistry itself is an afterthought. And that's really disappointing because Tetris as a game is a very elegant, simple game. And I genuinely think that that's a beautiful thing because there's a lot of thought that went into it, and yet it's a very intuitive game for anybody to learn and play really easily. And instead of giving us a taste of that elegance or that care that goes into the creation of this game, we just kind of get a lot of reasons why like one person might potentially be interested in purchasing that game, but no sense of like, additional simplicity or i don't know like respect for the game itself does that make sense i mean there i i get what you're saying the the joy in something like tetris isn't isn't so much like tetris tells us something as a game it's it is just a very simple game Mm -hmm. but there is there is a certain sort of joy in simply creating something so elegant and simple and yet so accessible and yet something that is 
you know, it's still with us today. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, there's something to that. And a film that was maybe more interested in plumbing the depths of why is it elegant? Why is elegance fascinating and captivating could have been something really great. Instead, it is a lot of scenes of people sitting around a table negotiating over price terms, which is, it's almost like a movie for day traders. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess you could have. No, no, no offense to day traders, but (laughs) maybe not interesting for people not in that profession. (laughs) Moneyball for day traders. This is not, unfortunately. Well, listeners, that is our review of Tetris. It is out this weekend on Apple TV plus. So you can check it out there. If you are an Apple TV subscriber and have thoughts on this film or on Tetris in general, we're interested in your thoughts on that game as well, or at least speaking for myself, I'm interested in people's interest in Tetris. <laughs> Give us your high scores, please. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm the sort of nerd who watches like professional Tetris on YouTube. So oh my maybe that's a little bit too revealing. But in any case, we're keen to hear your thoughts, listeners. You can email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Tweet us at cbelievepod on Twitter or comment on our Letterboxd entry for this film. Over on Letterboxd, our username on there is cbelievepod as well. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be talking about a film that's maybe a little bit better at exploring excellence and the mysteriousness of genius with our review of Amadeus. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to The Conversation. This is the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, helping us keep the conversation about movies going. So Sarah, uh, as always, you are our captain of of the Twitter feed, and uh, you had a question to pose to all of our listeners this week. What was it? So because we're covering Milos Forman's Amadeus, um, I just tweeted, what's your favorite best picture winner? Felt like a, a simple question would probably be the best there. And we got a, we got some good answers there. Dave Lester responded back with lots of good ones, being a huge Coen Bros fan. I might have to go with No Country for Old Men, but both Godfathers are up there, and his grandpa's all-time fave was Lawrence of Arabia. So... That's a murderer's row right there. Yeah, (laughs) to say the least. Yep. Uh, Christian Hamaker uh, responded first with La La Land. This joke will never get old. Um, But his real answer is Unforgiven, which also a good pick. Also a really good pick. Yeah, you said it was a a fairly simple question. But when I was going back through the list of best picture winners, I was like, oh, that's actually a really tough choice to pick a favorite because there are some really great ones, like, like you said. I mean, I would probably have to just go with The Godfather. It seems like kind of a basic choice, but also, I mean, you can't argue with excellence. You really, really can't. The Godfather is just such a good movie. And I, um, yeah, I I will go to the mattresses for it (laughs) against anybody who says otherwise. Um, Yeah, it's funny. I always ask these questions not knowing my own answer. Um, So I had to think pretty hard about this one. 
And I think it's a toss-up between No Country for Old Men and then All About Eve, which is just a fantastic movie. All About Eve was also up there for me as well. That's a great one for sure. Mm-hmm. Listeners, thanks for uh, writing in with all your answers to to that question. We'd also like to point any of you who uh, are maybe newer to the show or haven't had a chance to hear our pitch in a while. We've <laughs> got a Patreon, in case you didn't know. Uh, if you go to patreon.com forward slash seeing under underscore believing underscore podcast you can help support the show help us keep the the twitter questions coming Mm -hmm. and you can do that by pledging a certain amount monthly Uh, we have different rewards to say thank you for supporting the show in this way uh various tiers one of the most popular is the ten dollar a month level which Gets you, in addition to a few other things, such as a curated, personalized recommendation list from Sarah and me. Mm -hmm. Uh, Also, you can pick one movie per year for us to review on the air and make us talk about it, which is why we're going to be talking about Amadeus. Mm -hmm, Exactly. So um, if you are interested in helping to support the show, helping us to pay our wonderful producer, Jonathan, um, you can go over to Patreon and support the show. We actually have a Patreon-specific episode coming up about another one of those Oscar winners. Jonathan and I are going to be talking about Rocky in a couple of weeks here, so... Don't miss it. People who are already uh, pledged on Patreon, keep an eye out for that episode. I'm going to keep an eye out for it as well because I really want to hear what you and Jonathan have to say about Rocky. Uh, So that should be a fun episode for sure. Make sure you check it out if you are already a Patreon subscriber. And thank you. So now we're going to go to the watch list, which is the part of the show where normally one host picks a movie that the other host has not seen, and then we go and we watch it, and then we come back and we discuss it. But this week, um, I decided to do something a little bit different. We got that Patreon pick in, so we um, are going to be talking about Amadeus, which is a Patreon pick from Dave Welch, who may or may not be a relation. <laughs> um, and this one's a bit of an unusual one because I may have made the pick for the movie, as in I chose to discuss this Patreon pick on this specific episode, but I had actually never seen Amadeus before. So Kevin, I believe you have had the pleasure. Yeah, so uh, I I mentioned at the beginning of the show that this is one of my very favorite movies of the 80s. So I was really happy when this was number one, one of the uh, Patreon picks that we've received Mm -hmm. for 2023. I was also really happy just to like um, have it be in the watch list slot. Uh, So in a way, even though I didn't pick it for you to watch, Mm -hmm. it's almost like uh, Dave sort of stepped in for me and kind of did that for me. I I really like Amadeus a lot, so I'm looking forward to seeing what you thought about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh my gosh, yeah. I'm very excited about this conversation. So for listeners who have not seen Amadeus before, you know, no shame in that at all whatsoever. Um, but this is Milos Forman's epic sort of historical telling of the life and artistic attempts of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart, Um, but it's told through the lens of his fictional rival, well, a real person, but the movie sort of makes up a rivalry to go along with it. Um, It's told, narrated by Antonio Salieri, another composer who was alive around the same time. Um, And Forman sort of takes us through Mozart's 
intense rise and then sort of ignominious fall as it's narrated by Salieri in flashback. There's a lot of very interesting editing choices that are going on here um, and just a lot of artistic richness, both in terms of the subject matter of the movie and then also the movie itself. So, Kevin, I guess I'll, I'll kick it back to you a little bit. What makes this one of your favorite movies of the 1980s? I mean, I've I've... I've said it before on the show, I really like uh, movies that really go hard on uh, the phenomenon of genius mm. and just probe at it and try to figure out what make what what it what is genius? What is it like? Uh, where does it come from? Uh, and how does it affect the world around the genius? And I feel like lesser films often fall down because number one, it's a really tough task. So, you know, no shame necessarily in not uh, succeeding at answering these questions. Um, But also some of the misstep in making the genius, the main character, Hmm. essentially trying to put the audience in the headspace of a genius and just sort of try to explain it that way by making the genius sort of the star of the show and what I think is interesting about Amadeus is the genius is the focus of the film, but he's not the point of view character. Mm-hmm. The point of view character is one of the normies, one of the one of the people who looks at the genius and says, I can recognize your genius. I can recognize maybe better than anyone else how you're a genius, but I can't do what you do. And I think that's really an interesting angle to take on it um, because weirdly it's not an angle that a lot of films of this ilk take. And it's also very relatable because I think it's probably not (laughs) insulting to say that most of us uh, are not geniuses. Mm -hmm. I'm not a genius. Probably most of the people listening to this episode aren't geniuses. Uh, Apologies. I hope that's not too (laughs) offensive to say. Um, But what we can do is we can recognize genius. And I think the greatness of Amadeus the film is how number one it it does portray kind of the ineffability that sorry the ineffability of Mozart's genius and also the the strange way in which um Salieri's response to that genius isn't to appreciate it but to envy it and how that becomes a poison and I think that's uh, very instructive, um, relatable in some ways, but also um, kind of interesting to just observe how Salieri, rather than receiving Mozart's genius as a gift, sees it as something that he just wants and can't have, and it drives him up the wall. And I, I don't know, I just think that's an inherently interesting dramatic tension. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's just a sumptuous film on, on its own merits in other ways as well. So, Yeah, it's a tricky tightrope to walk, I think, to be able to, one, tell a story about a genius. I think it's difficult to write a genius regardless of whether or not they're the point of view character as well. That's a difficulty in and of itself. There's kind of that dual difficulty of having that framing device of having Salieri be the one telling the story. And I I do think it's a brilliant storytelling move. And I think also being able to get at that complexity. So 
it's fascinating to watch Salieri start by respecting Mozart and then realizing just how much of a child this character is, and then feeling that level of extreme dislike and also respect at the exact same time, and then watching those two just sort of curdle against each other as time goes on. And then for like an added level of difficulty, the movie is also framed in flashback with an older version of Salieri telling his story to a priest as sort of a pseudo confession, but also just as a, here's a story about this incredible person that I used to know and also hated and also appreciated very much, probably more than anybody else could have. And so you're telling this story in a series of flashbacks with Salieri narrating it from like a, a level of experience and wisdom that the version of him within the story also does not have. That's a very complicated way to tell a story. And I think the the wonder of this movie is that it's able to do that just so well and just so clearly. And at the same time, it's also teaching the listeners how to listen to and appreciate Mozart's music at the exact same time. Salieri literally gives a musical lesson to the priest who has come to hear his confession in the asylum that he's he's living in. And he takes us through how to understand and how to listen to the music that's being given to us throughout the entire movie. And it doesn't feel as though the movie is talking down to us. It's just teaching us how to appreciate Mozart's genius just a little bit more. I, I love F. Murray Abraham's performance in this. Mm -hmm. I think he's just such a, it's just such a tremendous performance. And I, it's hard for me to tell which register I appreciate more. The, the younger version of Salieri, who is contending with Mozart contemporaneously, or the older version of Salieri, who is still contending with the ghost of Mozart in his own head, and then also his own past choices at the same time. But I think I'm always going to be thinking about the way that he delivers some of the really delicious lines at the very beginning of the movie, where he's trying to sum up Mozart's life and then has to elaborate on that by telling this story. And it starts with a very simple sentence. The priest tells Salieri, all men are created equal. And Salieri responds with, are they? And the way that that line is delivered, the level of bitterness there. Like you can tell that there's a lot of history in that line and it's not overplayed at all. It's a perfect delivery in a line of perfect deliveries. I just, I love that scene. I love that it's intercut with the past so that we can understand the weight of the history behind that bitterness. And I really love that performance a lot. Yeah. It, it's a great performance. And I think the, the way that the, the way that the young Salieri and the older Sal Salieri are set next to each other by this framing device is really instructive because it almost by the end of the film, you, you kind of see like this is it, it's almost like a picture of Dorian Gray situation. Like the younger Salieri um, has the older Salieri inside him. And of course, the um, older one, you know, he's got that old age makeup. He's he's at the end of his life and his. His envy has ruined him, mm -hmm. essentially, um, both inside and out. And I think that's a really canny move to have them them both have that much screen time next to each other. It's not just a book ending device. It's 
interspersed. We come back to the older Salieri periodically to remind us this is who this guy becomes, and it's because he's allowed himself to become poisoned by uh, this this rivalry that he has. And it's really instructive also that in a movie about genius, in a movie about artistic excellence, about the joy of creation and the loveliness of music, the note that it ends on from Salieri is mediocrity. Hmm. When when he encounters Mozart, it doesn't so much lead him to appreciate the wonder of great art. It only shows him just how mediocre he's, he thinks himself to be in comparison. And I think that I, is – it's such a wonderful um, character study. And it's also a little bit of a cautionary tale to all of us watching in the audience that – there are there's a good way and a bad way to be a lover of art, mm-hmm. and uh, Salieri is obviously the, the the bad way to do it, and it's it's deeply sad, but it's also like he did it to himself. It's it's in that way, it's almost like a tragedy. That's his fatal flaw: is envy of artistic excellence rather than appreciation for it. Yeah, and I think it's a multifaceted tragedy because it isn't just that one way relationship between Salieri envying Mozart I think that there's also a lot of guilt especially in the performance of the older version of Salieri but I think there's also an immense tragedy in the fact that Salieri can't also see the goodness in himself and in the other people around him it's all overshadowed by Mozart and I think it's it it helps and it hurts I think it's a brilliant move that Mozart is just a terrible person. <laughs> this character is he's he's not a good character. Like Salieri talks about him being, you know, an infantile child and kind of the worst person that he knows and yet he's also blessed with the ability to create just such incredible music. And that bitterness is directed towards Mozart, but it's also directed towards God. Salieri is a very devout man. He believes that he has been put on earth in order to be able to create beautiful music and he is unable to live up to his own standards. And as soon as he recognizes that the person who is able to create the greatest music of all time in Salieri's opinion, and that person also doesn't appreciate that or like doesn't really live up to the level of you know grandeur or to the level of dignity that that position should afford him salieri is also embittered by this too and so i think there's there's levels of tragedy in that mozart mozart's genius is not appreciated mozart himself does not live up to the potential in other aspects of his life despite being able to create such incredible art salieri is embittered by Mozart's abilities and also by his inability to live up to that promise as well. He talks about how God created him with the drive and desire to create beautiful art and then rendered him mute as well. And I think that that's just such a a beautiful way of putting, I don't know, the, the way that he's kind of been blinded to his own potential too. Like I kind of read it as as a multifaceted tragedy where there's just there's tragedy going off in every single direction, and every aspect of it saddens me, and yet it's just such a complex, interesting portrait of several complex, interesting people. Yeah, Salieri, he's a fascinating character. There's there's a scene, um, a, a sequence early in the film. It's the one where Salieri first meets Mozart. Yes, 
And uh, the the sequence begins. It's just Salieri alone in his room, and he's composing a little a march, uh, a, just a little bit of a piano piece that he uh, he's prepared to uh, play for Mozart when Mozart enters the court to meet the Emperor of Austria. And uh, in that brief little vignette, he you know he's writing, and he looks up at the crucifix he has on the wall, and he says, "Thank you, Lord, like Grazie, Signore." You know he's. He's finished his piece and he thinks it's pretty good. And he's he he doesn't just feel good about it for himself, but he sees it as um, something that has been given to him by God. And he's appreciative of that gift. Then he takes it to the meeting with Mozart. Mozart not only uh, shows just how threadbare it is compared to his own stuff, but he embellishes it kind of imp- on an on the fly, improvised and kind of belittles it and almost humiliates Salieri in a way by doing so. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, the sequence ends with us back alone with Salieri in his chambers, and he's just glowering at that crucifix on the wall, and he says, thank you, Lord. <laughs> like, and, and you can see that it wasn't really about the art for him. It was really about he uh, flat... It, it, it's something that his own self-worth is tied up into it. That's not just a purely spiritual thing for him. And I think that that kind of moral spiritual vision is carried on throughout the film where we kind of get little touches in Abraham's performance, uh, just in the way that he interacts with women, Mm -hmm. the way that he uh, interacts with, um, with sweets uh, Salieri has a little bit of a sweet tooth and just the way Abraham has Salieri kind of luxuriate in contemplating a particularly delicious looking sweet or the way he kind of like eyes a woman that he's that he fancies shows that even though he's like morally like he doesn't indulge any of these appetites to excess but he's still got what a, a good Catholic might say is concupiscence in his heart. He mm. he coddles these desires. He doesn't act on them, but he also doesn't repudiate them. And I think that that's a really deft touch on the part of uh, Foreman and before him, uh, Peter Schaefer, the, the playwright who uh, wrote the play on which this movie is drawing from, <laughs> that Salieri, he's, he's a very devout man, but he's not he's not necessarily as good as he thinks he is, Mm -hmm. which is interesting because Salieri already doesn't think he's good, but his low opinion of himself, like he's, he's criticizing himself in the wrong areas. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just a wonderful portrait of how even people who are aware of their flaws, maybe don't focus on the flaws that they should be. And that's as a Christian, I think that's a really interesting bit of characterization. It definitely is, especially when he's contrasted with Mozart, the man himself, who I, I think we should talk about Mozart. Yeah, let's. Um, let's. <laughs> Tom Hulse's performance, um, he does such a good job of portraying somebody who is completely unself-aware and yet also completely aware of just how good he is at this one thing. Um the character's infuriating. I get why Salieri hates this guy. Um, and I also get why he admires him at the same time. Like there is that level of genius and there's that level of unselfconsciousness, you know, with the laugh and with the way that he comports himself and the way that he indulges all of these things that Salieri thinks he's, you know, keeping locked up closely behind, you know, in within his heart and not telling anybody about. It's it's kind of like that thing where if you ever meet somebody who basically like 
shows all of the things that you dislike about yourself. And so you dislike that person Hmm. a little bit more than you probably should, because you see a lot of yourself in that person and you see the things that you see as your own flaws in that person. And I think that that's a very powerful force. And I think that that can be a really ugly one. And it plays out in a very ugly fashion here. But the movie doesn't put too fine a point on it either. It's aware of that dislike. And I don't think Salieri is fully even able to articulate precisely why he dislikes Mozart other than the one that he keeps coming back to, which is that God has blessed Mozart with the talent that Salieri himself thinks that he deserves instead. Um, And I just I love how unselfconscious Mozart is about how irritating and obnoxious he can be. Um, It's I think it's a pretty brave performance, honestly, because it's very difficult to appear unselfconsciously ridiculous and confident in yourself at the same time. Some of that might have to do with the costuming and the makeup here as well. There's some really brilliant costumes too, but a lot of that also just has to do with Hulse's performance of the character of Mozart. Yeah, I I like how Hulse, he does a great job at capturing how somebody who's just really good at what they do um, and, and is is aware of it to the point where it's not so much that they're egotistical so much as just, it's just a fact to them that they're great Mm -hmm. and they're, they become comfortable with the idea of their own talent so that when uh, Mozart says something thoughtlessly that belittles Salieri to Salieri's face, he doesn't say it because he wants to belittle him. He just says it because it's a fact that, that, uh, the music that Mozart creates is a tier above Salieri's. And when Mozart says something that makes it clear that he knows that and simply regards it as a fact and not as something to be sort of like self-effacingly downplayed, I think Hulse does a great job at delivering those lines in a way where it doesn't seem mean and doesn't even necessarily seem thoughtless. It just seems like he's he's saying that a shade of blue is a little bit more vibrant than another. Like he's just observing something Mm -hmm. and you can understand why that just gets under Salieri skin as it would probably get under most people's skin. Mm -hmm. But you can also see that, that in Hulse's performance, Mozart doesn't intend it maliciously or even necessarily as sort of a, somebody who's completely unself-aware. He's just so caught up in whatever world the geniuses live in that (laughs) it just, it's, social niceties cease to matter quite as much. I think that's really, it's a great bit of performance and a great bit of writing as well. Yeah, it's something where all of this comes so easily to him. It's almost as though he doesn't understand just how hard everybody else has to work at it to be able to get to that point as well. Like he knows that he's good and he also thinks of all of this as being something that, you know, anybody should be able to do this if they just put their minds to it. There's this great scene near the end of the movie where Mozart is sick in bed and Salieri is taking down his dictation. It's a great scene. It's a fantastic scene. And Mozart is coming up with these lines and musical motifs and he's able to think through like what each of the different sections in the orchestra would be playing at a specific time and as he's dictating to Salieri he's saying you know um here's what the you know the horns should be doing and here's what the violins should be doing and he's doing it so quickly that you can tell that it's something that's coming very easily to him even though he's clearly working himself to death 
And Salieri can't keep up. He is unable to take that dictation as quickly as Mozart can. And as Mozart is dictating, he's moving on to the next section and he's already on to the next thought. Everything else that he said before is just kind of an afterthought because he's already thought of it. And once he's thought of it, it should just be down on the paper. And Salieri can follow what Mozart is doing. He clearly understands the genius of it. He understands how to take that dictation, but he simply cannot keep up. And that's just a beautiful distillation of the two's relationship in a nutshell. It's just Mozart is always ahead. Salieri is always behind. And he understands what Mozart is doing, but he just simply cannot get to that level. It's so sad. And it's such a beautiful way to get at their relationship. Yeah, and that extends even to the way that these these characters interact not just with each other, but with the people around them. We haven't talked yet about the the supporting cast uh, here, who I think are, are equally good. Mm-hmm. I really like Jeffrey Jones as the Emperor of Austria. He's so good. <laughs> he's 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 great. And again, it's a it's a great example of of an actor having just exactly the right instincts to play somebody who is in, in his own way he breathes such rarefied air that it's just sort of a fact to him that people kowtow to him and flatter him mm-hmm. and he he's kind of aware of it and kind of not but it, it almost it just it ceases to matter because that's just the the water he swims in constantly all the time mm-hmm. um i really like elizabeth barrage as yes. as mozart's wife who in her own way is kind of childlike um in in that she's she's just very young and she's uh married to a genius and so she's it's it's very exciting for her but also there's a lot that she just hasn't experienced of life yet and the ways in which that leads her to behave and also uh the ways in which that she kind of allows herself to be taken advantage of almost by um, the people around her simply because of that youth and kind of that innocence. I think Barrage does a great job of taking that character on the page and, and giving her flesh so that she doesn't, she doesn't feel sort of like just a little naive, you know, lamb lost in the woods sort of thing, but she's, she's her own character and she has agency, but she's also, she's just young. Yeah. And I, I think that that's, it's a very touching performance in a way. And she's constricted by her place in society as well. There are things that are expected of her. And in some cases, she's willing to cross that line. Like She's willing to go and ask for favors for her husband when he's too proud to try to apply for a specific job. But she also knows where that line is drawn. And she's very intentional about where she's crossing it. So yeah, she's she's not remotely naive, although she is very young and inexperienced. But she is smart enough to understand when she is in danger or when her husband is putting her in danger. And I appreciate the way that Barrage plays her because she maintains kind of that youthful innocence or in that kind of quality within her character throughout the entire time span of the movie, which covers, I think, something like 15 years. But you see her growing in experience as she gets older as well and learning where to draw the line closer and closer to where she's comfortable drawing it as opposed to where society or some other man is going to draw it for her. I think it's a really great performance too. I I, I like how the, the film do, also does a, a really interesting tightrope walk where it does feel very much like of the time. Mm-hmm. It is a period piece, obviously. Um, but also there are just little touches that Foreman 
um, puts in throughout that kind of feel makes it feel very modern at the same time. Uh, you know, Roger Ebert liked to comment a lot on how Mozart's wigs are kind of this this pink and sort of like a punk aesthetic mm-hmm. transplanted into you know the the time of the film. And I think that's a, it's a great example. I think of how Foreman's direction and the way his costumers um, go about the film, like. It, it, they they come up just to the line of anachronism, but they don't do it in a way that just totally breaks the reality of it. I think that's a really great, delicate uh, balancing act they pull off. Yeah, I know absolutely nothing about fashion in Vienna in the late 1700s, early 1800s. Like none of that would make sense to me at all. Um, so it's, it's something that I'm not familiar with. And yet I felt so comfortable in this world because of those decisions. And I appreciate that the pink of that wig, it feels so vulgar and I couldn't put my finger on why precisely it feels vulgar, except that it's a wig that's sitting on Mozart's head. And you can tell that it is just the kind of thing that would appeal to this character specifically. Nobody else is wearing a wig quite like it. And so it kind of sets him off as both being a unique person and then also a unique person in a very specific way. It's a great choice. I just, I love the costuming overall for this as well. The way that the different characters are dressed, the richness of the embroidery, including, and especially I think on Mozart, who is penniless for most of the movie and yet he's wearing all of these very ridiculously fine clothes and i think that does a good job of setting him apart as a character within the crowd too because he's got this artistic quality to him that everybody else recognizes to different degrees but no one more than salieri and he's kind of set apart from everybody else because it's almost as though he's he's spendthrift both with his talent and then also with his money and with the way that he dresses himself it's a great bit of characterization as well like foreman doesn't highlight the fact that he is he does make it clear that mozart has money troubles Mm -hmm. but he he very subtly suggests that you know mozart's going out he's buying these wigs he's he's decking decking him and his wife out and yet they can't really afford that i think that that's it's a way of telling the story through costuming without putting too fine a point on that i think is really wonderful and i think also it gives the film a texture that, especially in the director's cut, really um, just makes the film come alive. It's interesting. This film won Best Picture without the director's cut that we is kind of the most common one now mm-hmm. having been seen. Because in the director's cut, you do get some scenes that flush out the narrative a little bit more. And you also get much more extended scenes of Mozart's music, which is supposedly the thing that, you know, this is what makes him a genius. And yet... Um, it wasn't until the director's cut that we really get to luxuriate in these operas that Mozart wrote and really kind of experience them at length. And I think that that's integral to this film, I think, feeling like such a masterpiece to me is that, uh, like you said, it kind of teaches us how to listen to the music Mm -hmm. at the beginning with the way Salieri talks about it so well. Um, And then uh, it lets us kind of sit and, basically watch sections of an opera and even if you're not an opera person you it's just so wonderful to experience that music and also experience it in the way that the audience uh, of the time would have experienced you know there's candles Mm -hmm. for illumination there's no stage lights obviously um and the the way that everything is so present in that room i think it's just it's textured in a way that i think makes the artistry come alive which 
helps the portrait of genius. And one of my favorite things about that portrait is that the movie is aware of Mozart and his place within populist art and what is popular and what is commercial versus what is actually good as well. I think there's a really interesting thread there. As Mozart gets older and as his um, as he's writing more operas, the audience gets less and less behind him as well as he kind of falls out of favor with the king and as Salieri um, manipulates him and his place in um, in Vienna as well. And I just, I love that the movie recognizes Mozart's genius without making everybody else kind of fall around down around him. Like it doesn't need to beat into us that Mozart is a genius by having everybody recognize it. I think it feels much more potent because it shows Mozart as being a genius and we see that through Salieri's eyes and we see that Salieri is jealous both of Mozart's ability and his talent and is also furious that nobody else quite is able to see that ability or that talent nearly as well as he does. I think that adds an additional layer to Salieri's own arrogance as well, is that he's able to recognize that genius in a way that nobody else can. Yeah. One of my big pet peeves about movies about remarkable people is when there's a climactic standing ovation. I hate that. (laughs) Whenever I see it in a biopic or, or based on true life story, I just, I can't stand it when the film, when the filmmakers flatter the audience and themselves by having all the characters kind of stand up and give a standing ovation to this person who was a genius all along. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think it kind of places the audience to sort of like, oh yeah, we're, this person is getting their due as they should have. And I would have been there standing, giving them a standing ovation as well. Whereas in Amadeus, Amadeus ends up in a pauper's grave, yeah. you know? And I think that that's, I, I, I just, I like how this film is very clear eyed about uh, about how genius works, uh, both for the genius themselves and also the world around them, and also just how there are other... The, sometimes justice is not done in mm-hmm. its time, and that also is, is very clear. And I think it, it speaks maybe something to how, uh, you know, the, the grace of good art kind of comes and goes, and it's wonderful to receive it, and you can either receive it as a gift, you can ignore it mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, uh, send the genius to a pauper's grave, or it can be like Salieri and just enjoy it through gritted teeth. And I just, <laughs> I think that's just, it's a marvelous exploration of all the diff- those different facets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I also just love that the movie um, kind of recognizes the the monetary reality of all of that as well. The monetary reality, and then also the the reality that what everybody likes is not necessarily going to be the best art or what arbiters of taste like is not necessarily going to be the best art. There's a line where after Mozart has completed his first opera, Salieri tells him that the the poor king uh, who yawned multiple times throughout the performance um, only has an attention span of about an hour. And yet Mozart gave him four full hours with which to, to like have to pay attention. And uh, I don't know, like that feels very real today as well as it probably always has been, is that there are going to be kinds of art that is just not going to be appreciated by everybody. That doesn't mean that it's bad art. That doesn't make those people who don't appreciate that art bad people either. But there's always going to be a little bit of a disconnect, I think, between the audience and the art and the artist. And I don't know, I, I appreciate that the movie 
took the time to draw that distinction and then not necessarily dwell in it either. So would you say that you came away appreciating this particular piece of art? Yes, <laughs> I did. And in this case, you know, it did win Best Picture. So I guess it kind of uh, got appreciated by uh, everybody in its time and uh, for, for many years to come. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Listeners, that is our review of Milos Forman's Amadeus uh, from 1984. Uh, if you have any thoughts about this great movie, I mean... It's been around for for a while, so if you've had a chance to watch along with us, we'd be interested in your thoughts. You can email us or tweet us or hit us up on Letterboxd to let us know your thoughts on that. We are going to be taking a step back to to something maybe a little bit lighter, a little bit more frothy for (laughs) our uh, episode next week. Uh, We are going to be reviewing the new Dungeons & Dragons movie, subtitled, I believe, Honor Among Thieves. So get ready for that. I challenge anybody to say that D&D is not art. Uh, As a person who enjoys playing D&D on occasion... Okay. It's it's a fun game. Yeah, I, I've I've played uh, a few role-playing games in my time as well, so keep an eye out for that next week. And to pair with it, I've got the watch list uh, power for next week's episode. And so I'm going to keep the good time adventure train rolling with a little film called The Mask of Zorro. It's having its 25th anniversary this year. So we're going to go back to what I think is the last great swashbuckler that Hollywood ever produced with that film. Looking forward to it. I do love Antonio Banderas, so. It's a good one for sure. Well, listeners, that'll do it for this week's episode. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.